The following broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, is made possible thanks in part to the support of Wilbur Hot Springs, a health sanctuary and nature preserve located in Calusa County, California. As many of you know, for half a century, Wilbur has been a place for me personally to rest, replenish, heal, and create. Wilbur is completely off the grid, situated in an 1,800-acre nature preserve. For over a 100 years, the slogan of Wilbur has been, In all the world, no waters like these. This year especially, it's vital to take time to unplug, to be with prescription-grade nature, what I call R, little x, capital N. Focus on your personal well-being. I suggest that unless you're in a vehicle, step away from your devices for a second. Take a deep breath. Imagine Wilbur's natural medicine waters enveloping you. Visit WilburHotSprings.com and book your stay today. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of humans are friendly, tribal animals, and when we live in small enough communities in which we know each other by name, we are collaborative enough to sustain all of us. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, we'll bring you COVID-19, a survival guide. And it is my privilege to have with you two internationally prominent scientists. Creon Levitt, formerly a rocket scientist, 35 years with NASA and now with Planet Labs, and Dr. Nicholas Cozy, a psychopharmacologist at the University of Wisconsin Medical School. Stay tuned for what I am confident will be a conversation worth listening to and for some of you participating in. Yes, you may text or call in at 650-TALLY-HO. That's 650-TALLY-HO. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Before I give the actual news and notes, I want to say something very personal. You're going to hear various views on this program today and in the future. They are the views of the scientists and authors, prominent people from around the world who participate in mind, body, health, and politics. Personally, I am neither a Republican or a Democrat, and I never have been. I believe that both of these parties are having a big party at our expense. Why do I say that? because I believe that lobbying should be a felony. And when people go to our Congress people and take them on junkets, take them out to fancy dinners, give them all kinds of presents, for me, that's bribery. And lobbying is a sanitized word for bribery. Secondly, when we passed this law and allowed corporations to become people, yes, corporations became people, they became able to give vast amounts of money to Congress people. Those two issues alone are corrupting our country. That's what I believe in. 
I don't say that as a Democrat or as a Republican. I say it as a citizen of the United States. I'm an ecologist, I hug trees, and I believe in the Second Amendment. I go by issues. Now for more news and notes. We're living in an era where the still-sitting president of our United States is attacking scientists while undermining and politicizing their essential work. I say essential work because I believe that pure science is our most effective tool for creating public policy and especially healthcare policy. Science has, as its only agenda, the observation, identification, description, experimental investigation, and theoretical explanation of phenomena. There can be no bias in science, only observing and recording. When the president or anyone extorts scientists towards their bidding and away from clean science, the public trust in science is destroyed, as well as the reputations and credibility of the scientists who allow themselves to be extorted. Presently, we're experiencing a pandemic of biblical proportions. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, once again distanced himself from a doctor who advises the United States president on COVID, saying he totally agrees, uh, disagrees, beg your pardon, totally disagrees with Scott Atlas. Atlas, a neuroradiologist with zero training in, effect, in infectious diseases, has followed the president and taken to Twitter with what most scientists believe is dangerous information. I don't want to say anything against Dr. Atlas as a person, but I totally disagree with the stand he takes. I just do, period, Fauci said on national television. Atlas has become a favored advisor of the president because of their similar views on the COVID-19 response. Basically, the, co- the president's COVID-19 response is no response. While Fauci has warned of the danger of rising case numbers across the U.S. and urged mask wearing and social distancing, Atlas has argued that young and healthy people should be allowed to resume their lives as normal because they are less likely to become seriously ill if they get covid I wonder, personally, how he defines less likely. As the U.S. enters the worst stage of the pandemic thus far, with about 150,000 new cases confirmed per day, governors and local leaders have instituted new restrictions aimed at slowing the spread and keeping hospitals from being overwhelmed with patients. As I say this, hospitals are getting overwhelmed with patients. The president has 70 million people who voted for him. An unknown number of that 70 million follow the president, do not wear masks, and scream that Fauci should be locked up. One of the president's minions, the hate-mongering Steve Bannon, has called for Fauci's beheading. So many threats have been made on Fauci's life that he must travel with bodyguards. The president's direct attack on Dr. Fauci is part of a historical tradition perpetrated by those who demand their personal views triumph over science. A few examples from history. 
You all remember Alan Turing? Many of you do. There was a movie made about his life. English mathematician, computer scientist, logician, cryptoanalyst, philosopher, codebreaker, and theoretical biologist, a polymath who was famously castrated after admitting to homosexual acts. He is one of a long line of scientists who have been persecuted for their beliefs or practices. Turin chose castration so that he could stay out of jail and continue his research, although his security clearance was revoked, meaning he could not continue with his cryptographic work, which was critical to the British government. The castration made him impotent. Turin committed suicide by cyanide. Way go back, oh, hundreds of years, over a thousand to 1865, the famous Muhammad ibn Zakaria Razi, known as Razis, was a medical pioneer from Baghdad who lived between 1860 and 932 AD. He was responsible for introducing, introducing Western teachings, rational thought, and the works of Hippocrates and Galen to the Arabic world. Razi's books made him famous, but an offended Muslim priest, ordered the doctor be, to be beaten over the head with his own manuscript. This caused him to go blind, preventing him from future practice. And then, between 1511 and 1553, Michael Servetus was a Spanish physician who was credited with discovering pulmonary circulation. He wrote a book which outlined his discovery, also he included some of his ideas about reforming Christianity. It was deemed heretical. He escaped from Spain and the Catholic Inquisition, but came up against the Protestant Inquisition in Switzerland. They held him in disregard, and under orders from John Calvin, who started Calvinism, Servetus was arrested, tortured, and burned at the stake on the shores of Lake Geneva. And then, last but not least for now, we have Galileo. The Italian astronomer and physicist Galileo Galilei was trialed and convicted for publishing his evidence that supported the very far-out theory, the Copernican theory, that the Earth revolves around the Sun. Imagine that. His research was instantly criticized by the Catholic Church for going against the established scripture that placed Earth and not the Sun at the center of the universe. Galileo was found vehemently suspect of heresy for his heliocentric views, and he was required to abjure, curse, and detest his own opinions. Galileo was sentenced to house arrest, where he remained for the rest of his life, and his offending texts were banned, completely banned. There are only a few stories about honest scientists that I've told you. But now for our interview with two modern scientists. And remember, if you want a text to call in, the number is 650-TALLY-HO. 650-TALLY-HO. I love the way it sounds. Today, we have a good fortune. We have with us two super clean scientists, Creon Levitt and Dr. Nicholas Cozy. Creon was a NASA scientist for 35 years, 
before joining Planet Labs in San Francisco in 2015. Creon is a true polymath, and his areas of expertise are so long that I'm only going to bring you a few. Physics and chemistry, aerospace engineering, space propulsion, molecular biology and medicine, including immunology, including nuclear medicine, microscopy, did I say microscopy, (laughs) and medical imaging, and nutrition. Creon has a lovely wife, Aria, who dresses him colorfully, and he's a lot of fun at parties. Dr. Nicholas Cozy is an educator and scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Medicine and Public Health. He holds a Ph.D. in pharmacology and a B.S. in pharmacology and toxicology, both from the University of Wisconsin School of Pharmacy. Dr. Cozy's background and training is in pharmacology, chemistry, and neuroscience. As an educator, Dr. Cozy teaches pharmacology at the UC um, Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and at the University of Wisconsin School of Pharmacy. He's a frequent guest lecturer at other academic institutions around the United States. Dr. Cozy lives with his lovely wife, Ava, near Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Good to have you. So the big issue, or there are many big issues, I take that back, there are many big issues, but one of the big ones that's facing America with regard to COVID-19 is this issue of masks. The president has been labeled an anti-masker, and we've seen him going about without a mask on numerous occasions, and people around the United States at his rallies have been photographed and videoed and so on, not wearing masks. There are other people who are saying, such as Dr. Fauci, that masks are the way to stop the transmission of COVID. Where do you two stand on this issue? Who wants to go first? You're both I, I can I, I can uh, comment. Uh, Please. Uh, I believe that masks are the easiest, most accessible, most non-invasive method to reduce the spread of COVID-19 and other infectious diseases that are transmitted via droplets uh, in the in the breath or, or from coughing, sneezing, et cetera. Um, so the, the technology is there. They don't, they're not really, uh, don't require uh, high technology to create an effective mask. They can be made at home. Um, they, they don't require any fancy medical equipment, any new drugs, uh, et cetera. I mean, these are all tools that we'll be using, of course, but I, I believe masks are the, are the really first go-to activity that people can do to prevent or at least reduce the spread of the virus. That's what you're saying you believe. What in science leads you to believe that a mask will have this positive effect at blocking transmission? 
Well, I mean, it's self-evident that a physical barrier between the source of the virus and a recipient is is going to be effective. In the extreme case, if you had a solid wall between the infected person and and the and the and the receiver, obviously there would be no transmission. So that's kind of the basis. It's it's really self-evident. Now masks are porous, so they do allow some transmission of small particles. They're not 100% effective, but they reduce the transmission of aerosols which contain the virus. Creon, do you agree with Nicholas or disagree? Where do you stand? Um, I partially agree um, and partially disagree. Uh, uh, where I stand, I, first of all, I mean, we could do the whole hour and a half on masks if we wanted to. Uh, I'm not sure that that would be a great interest to anybody but us, but um, to kind of be brief about it, I think masks are... I'm a little bit confused about masks and about the, not only about masks as a technology, but also about the public uh, polarization over masks. So uh, my mind is always open to more data, but here's where I currently stand on masks. I think, I wish they worked because as Nick said, they're inexpensive, they're low tech, they're easy, and it kind of seems like they should do no harm, the first approximation. So why not wear them, you know? Um, but I was kind of surprised because what I did was I started looking at the different kinds of, I mean, Nick says it's self-evident, and it seems, yeah, it seems like they should work. So I started looking at as much data that I could find on clinical studies on the effectiveness of masks for preventing the transmission of respiratory viral disease. And what I found, and I read everything I could on this, and most of it, of course, is pre-COVID, because there haven't been many clinical studies with control groups and non-control groups, masked and unmasked, to look at the transmission of COVID. But there have been plenty of clinical studies for influenza and um, other respiratory viruses, as well as other uh, infections that can be transmitted uh, bacterial infections and such through respiratory means, which one would think masks would be even more effective for since bacteria are the bacteria tend to be larger than viruses, substantially larger. And what I found uh, was that the evidence for masks being effective to prevent the transmission of respiratory viruses was not good. I wouldn't say it was non-existent, but it was not strong, and some of it was pretty weak. Uh, in fact, a lot of it was weak. And a lot of it was not was just null, and so that surprised me. Okay, and I've collected all these papers that I could find and annotated them, and they're available for anyone to see and comment on if they want to. Um, yeah. So then, after clinical studies checking, you know, on whether and and by the way, these clinical studies looking at the effectiveness of masks to prevent transmission of viral diseases tend to be done in hospital settings. Uh, with medical care professionals who are wearing sterile masks that are being changed out on a regular basis and who are totally trained on how to don them and doff them and dispose of them and wash their hands and fit them and all these other kinds of things. And even there, it seems like the effective masks are far less than one might think from just thinking that it's self-evident. 
Okay. Now, why that is, is an interesting question. Were there flaws with all these studies? Maybe so. So then you get into associational studies, right? And the associational studies where they like interview people and ask them if they wore masks or not and ask them how many people they know who got COVID or not. Things like these, these things where you don't actually observe, like things where you don't actually control, but you just kind of collect data after the fact. Those studies tend to be a little bit more favorable towards masks. But those studies, it's much harder to disentangle confounding factors like sanitation and other um, uh, health and medical practices of the people involved. So it's very strange. Clinical studies don't seem to show masks are super effective. Observational studies seem to suggest masks are somewhat effective. Then you get into all the simulation studies, like people who aren't medical people or biologists really at all, blowing smoke and aerosols through materials in laboratories and checking how much goes through and things like that. And, you know, there, as Nick says, you get into these obvious kind of things that if you put a filter in front of a stream of aerosol, it's going to filter things out. And so those kinds of simulations and fluid dynamics and laboratory uh, tests on material porosity and things like that, they suggest that math masks should be really fairly effective, but, you know, they're like the farthest removed from actual real life. So what you're saying, if I understand you, Creon, is that it, for your, from your perspective and your research, masks are effective, but maybe not as effective as Nick is saying or others are saying. Nick, what's your response to what no, you wait, heard, wait, Creon? Let me, let, me, let me clarify my opinion. If you're going oh, to okay, sorry. What I'm saying is that there's a paradoxical set of results for masks, masks which kind of confuses me. Laboratory simulations, fluid dynamics, and theoretical models suggest they should be quite effective. Observational studies suggest they are somewhat effective. Clinical studies in medical care settings, looking particularly at masks for the preventing the spread of respiratory viral diseases, are the evidence is very weak at best that they do anything at all. And I know that's controversial, but I can pretty much guarantee that if you go and read literature on that exact issue of clinical studies of masks stopping the transmission or slowing the transmission of respiratory viruses in medical settings, you will be surprised to find that the evidence is very weak at best. And so that, you know, if you ask me, am I, like, I can't say I'm a pro-mask, anti-mask. I'm confused about masks. I'm one of the people who can wear a mask, and it doesn't really affect me in any way. So, of course, when I go out in public, I wear it. And when people want me to wear it, I wear it. Do I really think it's going to do any good? Not my mask. Not my cloth mask that's been hanging on the dashboard of my car for three weeks, incubating bacteria, and that I touch 16 times when I put it on and take it off and go into Trader Joe's and come back out and put it back in my glove box. No, I don't think my mask is protecting me or anybody else, but you know, it doesn't hurt me. And if it makes people feel good and doesn't get me arrested, I'll wear it. Is it going to stop the spread of COVID? I sure wish it would. I'm pretty damn skeptical. Okay. Let's hear from Nick. Yeah. So we're, we're faced with, uh, uh, a seeming discrepancy between the 
controlled studies that Creon mentioned where aerosols are, you know, pushed through a mask, uh, you know, laser lights are used to visualize the, uh, the aerosol and they're, they're clearly effective there. On the other hand, I, I don't dispute that in r the real world, they seem to be less effective. So we're faced with explaining what is different in uh, a clinical setting versus, uh, you know, a fluid dynamic experiment. And, and so my thought is that it's the application of the mask rather than the physical properties of the mask itself. I think we would probably both agree that physically the masks are gonna prevent or at least greatly reduce the passage of aerosols. What's different in a clinical setting? Well, as, as, as Creon mentioned, even in his car, he's touching his mask, he's setting it down, he's moving it around. And so unless we can control for these other variables that may compromise the efficiency of mask wearing, for example, people touching their face, putting their reading glasses on, whatever. Uh, uh, now, th so th these things which may reduce the seeming effectiveness of, of masks are not due to the masks themselves. It's just the way people employ them in their day-to-day -day life. And I, I, I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't disagree uh, with those findings, but um, uh, in, a, in a pure controlled situation, I, I, I don't think there's any disagreement that, that masks will reduce the transmission of aerosols. I want to ask you both, how do you relate to the Duke University study, the Department of Physics, where they took material of the same size in microns as the COVID molecule, and they pushed it through 15 or 20 different kind of materials and then measured how much came through the material. Uh, and then they made their conclusions. As you recall, their conclusion was that there is a very significant difference between the materials and that the N95 blocks in the high 90s percentage of molecules the same size as COVID and of equal importance that three layers of cotton block almost as much as an N95. Now that's laboratory research with molecules. How do you two relate to that study. Uh, Creon, first, please. Okay. I most, there's been a lot of stuff coming out about masks recently. And a fair bit of it is as you described. Uh, laboratory studies that don't involve people and don't involve viral transmission, but involve fluid dynamics and particle dynamics and basically uh, physics. And I haven't really paid that much attention to those studies, and here's why. There are plenty of studies over many years looking at the effectiveness of masks at controlling the spread of respiratory viral infections, okay? And that's what we're interested in. We're not interested in smoke and aerosols being blown through fabric in laboratories. We're interested in the whole picture. If you have trained people wearing masks all the time in a hospital setting, how much viral disease 
spreads versus if they're not wearing masks, but they're doing everything else, washing their hands, blah, 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 how much viral disease spreads to those hospitals. And as I've said, in clinical settings, controlled clinical uh, settings with control groups and mask wearing groups, as far as I can tell, the evidence with trained medical people wearing sterile masks, the evidence is very weak that any positive effect at all happens uh, from the use of masks. It's okay, let me, let me interrupt you, Creon. Nick, mm-hmm. how do you relate to the Duke University research? Well, uh, you know, it's true that it was a controlled experiment uh, and they looked at particle sizes. I, I just want to, just so we're on the same page, the, the virus itself is uh 50 to 200 nanometers in diameter. This is very small. It, it's uh, far smaller than a red blood cell, for example. Uh, and the N- N95 masks uh, prevent 95% of particles bigger than 300 nanometers. Now, so it, it, it's not that effective at, pre- at preventing individual virus particles from penetrating but the uh, understanding is that the viruses are transmitted in an aerosol. That is, it's not free viruses that are spewed out into the air, but rather droplets of, of fluid, lung fluid, saliva, and so on, that contain the viruses. And these particles are much larger than an individual virus. So uh, point of clarity there. And so the, the study that uh, I believe you're referring to uh, uh, found that the ability to prevent transmission depended on the thread count of the fabric. And so uh, a fairly loose weave fabric of one to 200 threads per inch was not very effective, but when they went up to 600 threads per inch, and in particular had two layers uh, they found that these were as effective as an N95 mask. This is cotton fabric, by the way. Uh, so uh, that's true. Uh, I'm intrigued by, and, and Creon seems to be more knowledgeable about these clinical trials uh, than I am uh, comparing mask wearing to non-mask wearing. And I would just pose the question, well, why do you suppose that is? If the masks, you know, as as a physicist, you you know uh, understand that uh, these small particles can't penetrate a barrier, depending on the the porosity of the barrier. Wh- why do you think the masks are not effective in a, or at least not as effective as one would predict in a clinical setting? Great question. That's my question. Okay, let me uh, address that question, but I'd like to just clarify two things. First, based on what Nick just said. First of all, I think there's some confusing or, or overloaded terminology here that I want to make sure that we separate out. I think that Nick and I may be using the word controlled trial in a different sense. Nick says there's controlled trials in the lab where they're in a physics lab where they're pushing aerosols and particles through a piece of material. That is not what we mean in medicine when we're talking about a controlled trial. When we're talking about a controlled trial in medicine, as you well know, it means that you have a group that receives or participates in treatment and a group that does not. And you try to equalize the groups in every other way so that there's the same number of, you know, 
males and females and sick people and non-sick people, et cetera. And that is a controlled trial where you try and control for everything else except for the variable in question, in this case, mask usage. And, um, you know, obviously a mask trial can't really be a blind controlled trial. So that's a different thing, but uh, that's, that's, so let's make sure when we're talking about a controlled trial, controlled, there's no such thing as a controlled trial in the laboratory. There's a controlled experiment. Obviously all experiments have to be controlled if possible, but um, we're using that in two different ways. So trying to, so let's not be calling a physics experiment in the lab with lasers and, and, and cameras a controlled trial, okay? So just, we're talking about- Creon, excuse me, al allow me to interrupt because I think we're getting a little too esoteric for our listeners and I wanna try to cut to the chase here. All right, All right. For, All right. And you, you got, you gentlemen are both what's called hard scientists. You deal with measurements of actual material things. I'm a soft scientist. I come from psychology. It's harder to measure such things as words and emotions. But let me offer you something from the soft science perspective. Mm -hmm. If you tell me that I go into room A, I will be dead in 15 seconds because of noxious fumes that are in that room. If you then tell me if I put on this mask, this suit, I can go in that room and work for a half hour, and I then trust you, and I go in the room, and I work for a half hour, and then you show me through a one-way glass that if you put an animal in that room, it dies in 15 seconds, then I say to myself, that mask worked. Now, we know we have such masks that, that really protect people from materials that kill them. Why are you questioning whether there is such a thing as a mask that protects us from the molecules that are piggybacking on water, these COVID molecules. Why are you questioning that there is such a thing as a mask, since you ver both very well know that we have masks that work on all kinds of dangerous uh, molecules? Uh, Creon, go first. Look, Richard, <laughs> we were just talking about two layers of cloth. Are you now? Come on, you're not going to go into a room full of uh, nerve gas with two layers of cloth over your nose because you will be dead in 16 seconds. So that's a red herring that you bring up. You, if you're wearing a full airtight respirator suit, by the way, when you see the pictures of these people working in labs with the dangerous viruses like uh, SARS-CoV-2, they're not wearing masks. They're wearing full airtight pressure, positive pressurized, biohazard suits no doubt if you're going to wear one of those you're going to uh not be ex you're going to well yourself. sure but creon it's all related to the size of the molecule you have to stop i've been in a forest fire with the firemen and i wore a mask and it wasn't a respirator you needed different types of masks for different amount of smoke and what we know about covid is duration and intensity how much of the COVID is around, and how long you're exposed to it. If you go into a store for, tw for 20 minutes, perhaps three layers of cotton is enough. And Duke look, University look. is telling us the truth. Otherwise, how do you question their data when they show the actual amount of the water molecules carrying the COVID 
through the layers. How do you how do you respond to that? I'm not questioning the Duke University study as it, as it stands. What yes. I question is the efficacy of surgical masks at and certainly cloth masks at preventing the spread of respiratory viral diseases. And what I'm saying is that if you look at that, that's what we're interested in. We're not interested in all these side discussions. We're interested in if people wear masks and use them correctly and dispose of them correctly, and they're the right kind of masks, is it going to slow the transmission of these types of viruses? And what I'm saying is that if you examine the studies that address that question, not a bunch of side questions about models and physical arguments, you, I think we'll find the evidence is rather weak. And I'm going to say one more last thing about this. And then I think uh, I'll yield to you guys and maybe we can move on to another question. Yeah, we have to. There is a one very large, random, a very large, tens of thousands of people controlled trial of the use of masks in the healthcare setting to slow the transmission of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. It's a Danish study, it's called DanMask. It was going to definitively answer the question about whether mask usage in a healthcare setting uh, uh, controls the spread of this disease. That study, which, um, well, when you look it up, Dan Mask, that study was completed quite some time ago, and it has been rejected from every major medical journal that it has been submitted to. And, you know, this is a professional thing done by people with many publications who've been in hospitals, and they said, when queried, when are we going to see the results of your study? And their answer was, whenever we find a journal brave enough to publish them. So I'm waiting for the results of that study. Thank you. Nicholas, last word on masks? Well, I, I just uh, still want to raise the question of what is there any uh, explanation or uh, reason other than the physical properties of the masks themselves that allow the virus to propagate? In other words, I don't think, you know, as, as physical scientists, I think Crean and I both agree that if there's a physical barrier, you know, uh, he gave the extreme example of like say a nerve gas and you're in a moon suit, right, they, that works. It's, that's what I meant by self-evident. Uh, but so, the, so it raises the question of why don't they work in a clinical setting? And, and I do recognize the randomized clinical trial, the RCT, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, randomized control trial as being different from a controlled experiment. I, I didn't mean it in that way. Uh, uh, but I, so let's say we have these clinical trials that Creon spoke about. What is, is there a speculation or a, an idea of why they're not effective? That's what I'm interested in is because that, then it gives us something to, uh, to correct or to address Maybe it's the way they're being used. Maybe there are other factors, and I think it would be important to identify those. Okay. I think we're going to wrap this up, as Creon said, and move on to something else. The takeaway, one last question. Uh, Creon said he keeps a mask in his car. He thinks it's old, maybe a little shabby, and he questions it, but he uses it. What do you use when you go out, Nick, and how do you feel about what you're using? 
Well, I use a, a respirator that I brought home from my lab. Uh, so this is a 3M uh, silicone half-face respirator with uh, that accepts cartridges. Uh, in the lab, I use uh, vapor cartridges, which prevent me from breathing solvent vapors, uh, but they make a, an N95 filter that fits into the same uh, fittings on this mask. And so I, I use those. So I use an N95 respirator and I also wear gloves, uh, nitrile gloves uh, when I go to the store, the grocery store. I, the weak spot is my, my eyes, which are not covered. Um, it was suggested that uh, swimmers goggles might be a good solution for that. These are inexpensive and available at, at sports stores. Um, but so that's kind of the, the, the Achilles heel is the mucous membranes in my eyes. And, you know, I have a habit of picking things up and, and then, you know, taking my reading glasses and putting them on. And so I, I see that as, and I'm aware of this, I try not to do it, but sometimes just out of habit, I'll, I'll get close to my eyes. And so, um, but to answer your question, I, I wear an N95 and, and uh, nitrile gloves. Okay, so for our listeners, and if you want to call in and ask questions, remember, 650-TALLY-HO. That's 650-TALLY-HO. For our listeners, it sounds like what the scientists are saying is masks have some efficacy, but we're uncertain about how much efficacy, partially because of the nature of the masks themselves, partially because of how we're putting them on, partially because of how we take care of them, many factors but I think there's agreement they're better than nothing. I asked the two scientists what they wear. I'll tell you what I wear. First of all, I hardly go anywhere. But when I do go somewhere, <laughs> I, I, it depends on how long I'm going to be in there and what I think the conditions are. Pretty much I only go to the grocery store. I'm going to be in there for a short period of time. Mostly I wear a respirator. Uh, it's a mask that covers my nose and mouth. It has a pipe coming out of it to a, a little gadget, that a piece of technology on my waist that has a filter in it, a HEPA filter. And so it generates clean air that's, that goes into my mask. I also have, should need be, an entire mask, the kind that uh, Nicholas was talking about. It goes from my forehead all around my face, covers my eyes, nose, and mouth, and it also has an oxygen generator on it, uh, uh, not oxygen, an air generator, I beg your pardon, and, uh, and that I consider to be quite safe. But as you heard today, it may not be the ultimate. But we have uh, time. It looks like we have a caller here. Uh, what would it take to convince these experts to take a vaccine? Oh, the, our caller wants us... To move on to the topic of vaccines, I was going to talk about testing, but let's talk about vaccines with respect to this uh, fellow, Steve in Corte Madera. What would it take to convince the two of you to take a vaccine? Uh, Creon, you went first last time. Nicholas, you go first this time. And thank you, Steve, for the good question. Well, uh, I think it remains to be seen uh, how long lived the immunity generated by a vaccine is. So not all vaccines provide lifelong immunity. Some do, 
measles vaccine, polio vaccine. Uh, it, my, from my understanding, the flu vaccines, the coronavirus vaccines as a family, do not provide long-lasting immunity. Uh, typically, my understanding is that it's perhaps four to six months, maybe eight months uh, at, at the most. So uh, with respect to a, a COVID vaccine, I, I, I'm not as optimistic as uh, some are that the vaccine will be the answer to our, our problems with this pandemic. But before we move on to Creon, what is your personal answer to Steve and Cordomadera's question, which is, what would it take for you to take a vaccine? Well, it doesn't take, I mean, I, I just had a flu vaccine like five days ago, six days ago. So I, I'm, I, I'm totally open to taking vaccines. I guess for the uh, COVID vaccine, what it would take for me is a little bit more information such as how long I'll be protected for. Uh, that that would be an important uh, uh, piece of data for me to know before I would I would go out and get a vaccine. Uh, Creon, what would it take for you to take a vaccine? Uh, to be convinced to take a vaccine or to be coerced to take a vaccine? To just take it, voluntarily go in and take it because it's available. It would either take a disease that is much more serious for people in my age and health category, and or it would take the companies that have developed the vaccines to be completely transparent with all the data about their um, trials programs, uh, which they have not been. It would take the companies that have developed the vaccines to not be indemnified against um, legal action, which they currently uh, are, uh, because so many vaccines had so many problems and so many vaccine companies paid hundreds of millions of dollars in fines because of these problems, uh, they made sure that they got leg they lobbied and got legislation passed that they cannot be uh, sued for uh, damages if there's something wrong with the vaccine. It would require that legislation to be um, uh, repealed or undone. Uh, and. Um, and then it would require the stuff that Nick talked about, like we'd have to really see. Because here's the thing, for people in my age and health category, this is a very low risk disease. And so, uh, and for people younger than me and even healthier than me, it's a trivially low risk disease. So you have to have a vaccine, which is like absolutely safe in the short and long term, and presumably also very effective for it to be worth it for younger, healthier people to take it. And so, um, you know, as I said, if I were old and frail and or if this disease was much more deadly, I might be more willing to take a vaccine uh, kind of on trust. But um, I don't have a lot of trust for these companies. They've uh, screwed up many times in the past. This vaccine has been rushed. Everybody knows these vaccines have been rushed. And they're of a new type, as I understand it, messenger RNA vaccines, which have never been um, trialed before. Now, from what I understand, I don't really know how a messenger RNA vaccine could like really go bad. I just think it's more likely that it might just not work very well. But but I don't know this. And uh, I guess if we had a vaccine that produced a robust T cell response, uh, but not too robust, like we don't want to over, you know, we don't want to have like the vaccine enhanced uh, 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 
problems that some vaccines do. This is a complicated issue. And I think the rush to make a vaccine and the panic around this disease, and we, can, we, we should discuss at this time or another time, actually how bad it is, actually how many people are dying, actually how many people would be dying of other things at the same time if they weren't dying of this, and the question of PCR and testing and the whole way this disease is even classified. This is something that I know Nick knows about and I'd love to ask him questions about because um, those are important questions. And then the next thing I'd like, we hope you have time to discuss, is what you can actually do to protect yourself against this disease. I don't think vaccines and masks are the primary ways population should be protected from this disease, nor are our lockdowns. I think there are much more effective ways to protect yourself from this disease, and they are not being talked about, and it's interesting to speculate why. So before the end of the program, we are going to talk about what we can do to protect ourselves. That's a great topic. But we also want to talk about testing, which you mentioned, and we want to talk about the various kinds of testing. But before we do, Steve in Corte Madera, did you get your questions answered by our two scientists? Can you let us Pretty know? much, but on the, on the next topic you were going to reach, the question I would have for them is, what do they think of essential oils like Ravencella and others as protection? Okay, thanks, Steve. I have uh, no knowledge of that. I'd have to look into that. No I comment. don't have any knowledge of it either. Do you, Nicholas? Not, none. I, none. I don't know anything about that. Okay. Let's move on. Remember, we are going to talk about what we really can do that you two agree on before the end of the program. But right now, based on what you just said about your lack of trust, both of you have expressed, correct me if I'm mistaken here, but both of you have expressed lack of trust in some aspect of vaccine production and administration for effectiveness. Question here. What is your perspective, larger picture, on the pharmaceutical companies in the United States and how trustworthy they are in terms of what they bring to the American public? Creon, you're first. Oh, well, this is a huge topic. Look, this is kind of the problem, really. The, I mean, this gets to the heart of the problem. The, there are ways to protect for people to protect themselves against this disease and many other diseases, in fact, most of the diseases that make people sick and frail and die and bankrupt them with medical expenses. Most of those diseases for a lot, for most people can be protected against by really simple measures, such as healthy lifestyle measures, eliminating certain things from your diet, taking few of the right and none of the wrong supplements, engaging in the right kinds of activities. There is no money in that for big pharma or big food or big medicine, right? And so nobody's talking about it. We're always, I mean, masks are kind of an interesting uh, exception to this, I'd say, but, but everyone's talking about vaccines, 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 and you know, expensive drugs. But all the cheap solutions like stop eating sugar, you know, stop, you know, get, get, you know, shed metabolic syndrome, uh, you know, get your blood pressure down by changing your diet and your exercise habits, take vitamin D, go out in the sun. You know, there's a whole bunch of simple things that can be done that will not only prevent you 
probably from getting COVID, or if you do, I mean, by getting it, I mean getting sick from it. But they'll also prevent you from getting heart attacks and strokes and all this other stuff. So why aren't we doing that? Well, it's because where's the money in that? Where's the money for big pharma and for the junk food industry and for all these other people if we go on this approach? So, uh, yeah. I don't I, now. I got on a rant. I kind of forgot the question. Okay, but. let's move on to Nick. Could you repeat the question? <laughs> We're talking about what, what's the question? The question is: as a scientist with over thirty years' experience, and both of you have worked for the government. Creon worked for NASA for thirty-five years. You've been working on government grants for decades. You're both trusted by the government. You both work for the government. The question is, how do you feel about the integrity of the pharmaceutical industry? And should oh, the American right, public right. trust the pharmaceutical industry? Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, I believe that the actual, uh, you know, where the rubber meets the road bench scientists are sincere and motivated by the search for truth and uh, are not thinking profits or bottom lines, at least the ones I've met and the ones I've worked with. The, the, the people actually doing the research are, are uh, for the most part, uh, high, uh, high integrity group. Now, I can't speak to the administrators or the, uh, you know, the, the, the C-suite uh, people uh, who may have the bottom line in mind. And so you have this kind of uh, uh, really two groups of, of people, some that are trying to increase profits and some that are seeking truth. And so I, I, I guess my feeling is that I believe that the scientists themselves uh, and the data that they generate are probably reliable. I have to say, I do have some experience in the um, biotech industry, and that experience was a little bit, uh, well, not totally happy. I, I did encounter some people who were uh, unscrupulous and would tend to uh, uh, grade data by breaking the, the blind, so to speak. They'd pick and choose data to present to clients that were more favorable to the outcome that they that they wanted and that was you know part of the reason I kind of moved back into academia where I, I feel that there's more of a pure search for knowledge there but by and large um, I know that the process that the pharmaceutical companies have to go through to get a drug approved uh, are, are generally fairly rigorous uh, although I agree with Creon that these vaccines have been kind of rushed uh, through in the interest of getting something. I also want to just say I, I agree with Creon about the, the, I guess, the lethality of this disease. I mean, it's, it seems to be clearly more lethal than seasonal flu, although perhaps not as lethal as say Ebola virus or something like that. Although the last time I heard, I, I think uh, COVID-19 deaths were the like third leading cause of deaths in the United States. So it, it's not trivial, uh, but I, I feel healthy and you know I could probably weather uh, an, an infection, but that doesn't change the fact that the, the lethality rate 
no matter how you measure it, uh, CFR, IFR uh, is at least tenfold more than the uh, seasonal flu. It's just a matter of whether you want to take a risk. Uh, one of my best friends uh, I talked to yesterday told me that his mother-in-law had just passed from COVID-19. Uh, she was an elderly woman. Uh, but so I, I know people who have directly lost loved ones to this. I also know a couple other people who have had the disease and come through, uh, you know, relatively unscathed. We don't know what the long-term effects might be. And I mean, death is a great endpoint because it's easy to measure, but there are other uh, comorbid situations that can arise, uh, difficulty breathing or uh, even some psychological uh, effects that might persist that we don't really know too much about. Um, Gentlemen, this I kind of went off on a tangent there. Yeah, but, but, let me bring us back. Gentlemen, listening to you, I have to think that listeners are confused because you're saying what I happen to agree with, which is, for the most part, the scientists can be trusted. That's why they go into science, to observe and measure and believe in it. But the people that they work for, the administrators, the marketing people, the salespeople, etc., cannot necessarily be trusted at the same level. So where does that leave the average citizen? I'm listening to people around the country, medical people, coming out of hospitals, treating people who are sick and dying, who are saying to them, as they're dying, if you believe what you see, on these videos, and they're from national TV, as they're dying, they're saying, you're fooling me. I don't have COVID. There is no such a thing. And I'm listening to doctors saying they're coming out of hospitals, treating people who are sick and dying, going out on the street, and people are acting as if nothing is happening and telling them they don't believe in the COVID altogether. And if you are both saying, men whom I trust deeply, that there are many aspects of the pharmaceutical industry that we cannot trust. And I know that that's true in my profession of psychology because we have caught them saying all kinds of things that were inaccurate about psychoactive medicines. Where does that leave our public? In a state of confusion. This is dangerous. This is very, very dangerous. And we need to talk someday, not at this t not today because we're talking about COVID, but someday about what, if anything, can be done to rectify this so that if something comes down the pike, the public knows whether to take it or not. And based on what we're hearing today and what you two are saying, we could potentially come out with a vaccine that's effective and we would still have a significant percentage of the public because of all the dis and misinformation they've received who will be afraid to take it. Yeah, Richard, yes. let's, look at, let's look at how that, I mean, I agree with everything you've said. And, it, and the really interesting question is, is about this polarization and, and this kind of confusion that we talk about. That's really of primary interest to me and perhaps to you as well as a psychologist. Um, so, but here's one thing, why are people so skeptical they're so skeptical because in some sense they know or are at least intuitively know the kind of thing you're talking about. They know 
that they have been lied to in the past about at least some things. They've been lied to about the nature of certain psychoactive drugs, both the illegal ones and the legal ones, both the ones prescribed by the pharmaceutical industry and the ones where there's a Baptist bootlegger alliance to try and imprison people who use the ones that are not patentable, uh, like psychedelic medicines and stuff like that. You know, public knows that that is messed up, okay? They know that a whole bunch of pharmaceutical uh, interventions are uh, ineffective or dangerous, and that these companies have lied and been caught and had to pay fines. And so it's kind of like, even if what's currently coming online as COVID treatments from Big Pharma is, is effective and, um, and safe, it's kind of like, to some extent, they have ruined the trust that many people have. And it's very hard to rebuild that trust. And so really, they only have themselves to blame. And trying to blame it on ignorant MAGA hat wearing, you know, Trump supporters is, I think, um, I think that's, I don't think that it's primarily their responsibility. I don't think it's primarily because of them. I think it is because not just the pharma companies, but even the government agencies like WHO and CDC have, and FDA has messed up so many times and not retracted it, their mess ups, and not admitted their mistakes and not apologized that people are distrustful. And, you know, obviously that distrust can go off the rails and they can become just completely paranoid and rejectionist and be dying in the hospital with disease that they don't think exists. That's ridiculous. But, um, but as you know, the FDA and the World Health Organization, all these people, I mean, they're the ones who brought us the standard American diet, low fat, high carb, totally bought and paid for by big food. They're the ones who brought us SSRIs and all these other treatments for psychological and physical ailments that do more harm than good, but make literally trillions of dollars for the companies prescribing them. So we are right to be skeptical of these companies. And um, let's just leave it at that. Yes. Quick question for both of you, please. I just want to make a comment before you move on. that I, I don't think the uh, the uh, callousness at the top, the, the profit-oriented callousness, is specific to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, so it's it's you know it's, I think it's par- probably a symptom of of you know corporate structure and having to answer to shareholders. Yeah, I see. <laughs> uh, so it, it's not just you know I mean there might be some industries where the uh, the people who are actually doing the work, the design, you know, the engineers, for example, in the car industry, they're doing it because they love engineering, you know, and they're good at what they do. Uh, but it's it's always these C-suite people that are kind of the the bad actors, uh, if you like, and not and not all of them. I don't want to be overly broad with this, but I think that that's led to a lot of distrust. Uh, and then when you talk about something that's going to affect your health, uh, you know, you're something like a drug that you have to take or, you know, you go see your doctor. I mean, you, you know, you have to trust that person and, and uh, you, you know, you want to, if, if they give you some action to take, you know, you, you're, you're going to want to take it. You, you have to trust them to do that. So anyway, just a, just a comment uh, on, on the uh, saying that it's not necessarily just 
limited to the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, there's Just corruption everywhere. Trust. Quick question, yeah. as I said, for both of you. Creon, it's 10 o'clock. Does your schedule allow us to go to 1030? Yes, it does, please. N- Nicholas, can you go to 1030? Or later. Okay, good. Or later. Excellent. We have a question from Joel Burback. He's watching us on YouTube, and he wants to know, are people actually dying from COVID-19 or with COVID-19? And he wants to know, who gets to say so? In other words, are the numbers accurate? I know you like this one, Creon, so I'll let you go first. The answer to his question is yes. People are dying from COVID-19, and people are dying with COVID-19. And the problem is that, and this is not necessarily anyone's fault or any conspiracy, it's just kind of a big mess. The problem is there's no standard for how to determine uh, if someone is infected with COVID, if they are sick with COVID, and if they die, if COVID is a primary cause of their death. Uh, And so the numbers are all messed up because depending on which state or county or country you get your numbers from, they're gonna be calculated potentially in very different ways. Part of this has to do with something Nicholas Nicholas will address, which is the uh, PCR uh, cycle threshold. Uh, But it also has to do with technicalities about how different counties and states fill out death certificates, how many causes they list, what order they're listed in, and if there are maybe perverse incentives to shuffle the causes around. Um, So uh, there's really only one statistic, as Nick suggested, that cannot be gamed when it comes to how many people are dying. And that is total mortality. So you pretty much, the total number of people who die in a given place, country, state, county, the world, in a given week, that is pretty hard to fake. You can't double count people. And there's no question about what they died from here. We're just asking how many died. And the fact of the matter is, to contradict Nick a little bit in what he said before, if you overlay the excess deaths over the average from the last, say, eight years uh, for the last year, whatever you want to call it, when COVID's been active, if you overlay the, the total mortality curves for, uh, say, the last year on previous years, and you slide it back and forth so that the COVID hump lines up with the f- average flu hump, from previous flu seasons, you will find that we do not have excess mortality really anywhere for this year. What we have is the mortality has been shifted away from the flu season, where we had a very mild flu season last year and the year before, into the COVID season. And curiously enough, now that we're entering into the 2020, 2021 flu season, flu diagnoses are down to like just a few percent of what they normally are. So whether that's because COVID has harvested all the people who would have otherwise died of the flu, or whether that's because flu deaths are currently being misclassified as COVID deaths for whatever reason, or both, we do not know. But I would say that this is, yes, people are dying of COVID, but they're not dying of flu, interestingly enough, which they normally would be at this time of year. And by the way, the total numbers of people dying from, let's call them, I think they're called influenza-like illnesses, which COVID is one. Uh, are about constant, 
uh, are about uh, uh, equivalent to what happens in other years, except the peak has been shifted to a few months earlier because of uh, COVID-19. Nicholas, the, you want to weigh in on this question? Wait, one, wait, one more thing. Oh. The, World Health, the World Health Organization did point out recently, it may have been inadvertent, but they haven't retracted it. They estimate 750 million people worldwide have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 and approximately 1 million people have died. That gives an infection fatality rate of about 0.14%, which is pretty much identical to the infection fatality rate for influenza. Nicholas? Yeah, uh, well, just, I mean, one comment is, you know, if a person dies from COVID, they can't die from cancer or something, you know, I mean, they're, they're already dead, but uh, I mean, that's kind of a trivial example, but I, I've seen uh, the data that Creon speaks about uh, where you're looking at the excess deaths. Now, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough about the actual numbers to know whether the excess COVID deaths are really kind of a blip and get lost in the noise because, I mean, millions of people die, you know, all the time. Uh, and getting to the question of is, is it a COVID death or not? And I mean, you know, yes, people are dying from COVID. Uh, do they have comorbidities? You know, maybe, maybe not. Um, there is really not a consistent way to measure this. Um, there's the, uh, uh, if, if you look at, confirmed cases, the number of deaths versus confirmed cases, uh, you always get a bigger number than when you look at the number of deaths to all infected individuals. That's always a bigger pool because you, you can't know uh, the total pool of infected individuals or people that you're not going to test or that are going to get the disease and, and, and pass through it and, and never be tested. So but uh, the the uh, uh, the infected fatality rates always smaller as, as Creon kind of alluded to. Um, but so that's you know that that's just some thoughts on that. Uh, is there something else? Uh, yeah, detail? I've, I've got something that has a little meat in it for the listeners that I want to ask you both, and then we're going to go on a little bit more with testing and. Um, I want to get back to what Creon said earlier about what we can do in our lifestyles to protect ourselves. Uh, the, 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 the meaty question is, given the sum total of what you each know, how are you living your daily lives as compared to before this pandemic arrived? Who wants to go first? I'll go first. All right. How are you living your uh, daily life? How are you and Ava living? That's what listeners want to know. How do we live? What do we do? Okay. How do we hang oh, out? And, and just just before I answer, I just wanted to just tie a knot on this. It's possible to test simultaneously both for COVID and uh, seasonal flu uh, in the same assay, although they probably don't always do this, but the technology existed distinguish whether somebody actually has the flu instead of COVID or COVID versus the flu or both. Uh, so how are we living differently? Well, I haven't gone out for sushi in like eight, nine months. And that's been a real uh, kind of blow to my pleasure. Uh, Ava and I uh, 
used to regularly go to our favorite sushi restaurant. We, we've been kind of avoiding it only because, uh, well, the food's not cooked generally. And that kind of, you know, sort of introduces this other variable of uh, if a person preparing it is infected and they, you know, put the viruses on, on, on my on my maki roll, you know, am I going to eat them? And, and actually, that's probably a, a fairly safe way to ingest it, ingest it because it'll probably get chewed up in my stomach anyway, but that's beside the point. Um, so uh, so there, we haven't been going uh, out to public restaurants to eat. We have a few that we like, but we've been avoiding doing that um, just because of the variables and people being misinformed or ill-informed or just simply not caring uh, about taking precautions. So it's a kind of an unnecessary, I mean, it's a nicety to go out and have a nice meal at a restaurant, but it's it's kind of almost, it seems to me in these times, almost gratuitous. Uh, uh, and, and so I, I'm, I'm sorry, I feel that way because I do enjoy it quite a bit. That's a big thing. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, when we do go out, we're always uh, wearing, uh, you know, PPE uh, and taking precautions. Um, we carry little bottles of alcohol around with us and, and so on. I mean, I, I don't want to get this disease, uh, you know, even though, uh, as we kind of mentioned earlier, it's, you know, I'd probably survive it. I'm, I'm in good health. I don't have other risk factors like asthma or, or, or diabetes or anything. So but I just don't want to get it. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to kind of perpetuate it. I mean, if I got it, then that means that, you know, I have the potential to pass it on to others. And just as a kind of responsible social being, I, I, I don't want to do that. So those are the two major ways that's changed my life, avoiding kind of restaurants and taking more precautions when we go out. How has it affected your scientific life? Oh, well, uh, not that much. I mean, I, you know, I have my laboratory and I don't really have to interact with uh, others uh, in order to use that, uh, or at least people in my, in my pod uh, could uh, in interact there. And lately I've been doing more uh, writing, uh, publishing a few papers uh, over the last six months or so. And, you know, so I work from home uh, doing that, and that, you know, therefore reduces my risk. So you were talking about uh, uh, your work in science and you're writing uh, papers at home. Let's move over to Creon. Creon, how has your daily life changed or not changed, if at all, from uh, pre-COVID pandemic? Let's see. I, I have three answers to that question. The first answer is not all that much, except I don't socialize nearly as much, although I probably socialize more than most people who are panicked about COVID, because I'm not. Um, uh, so that's sort of my briefest answer. My second answer with a little more snark, but a little more realism is that I was one of the lucky ones, like most of us are. We can, to a large extent, carry on, we're wealthy, we have intellectual kind of desk jobs. I don't know, Nick may have a lot of lab work that's been uh, slowed down, but uh, you know, I can work from home and I have not been fired and I have not been foreclosed upon or evicted. My business has not been shut down. 
and I have not been locked in a one-room apartment with my children under pain of fine and imprisonment if I try to go outside for some fresh air. So yeah, I'm fine, but unfortunately, and this is my third answer, I now live in a world that has been taken over with uh, suicidal panic over a disease that is uh, uh, not much worse, if at all worse, than uh, a bad flu year. By bad, I don't mean 100-year flu. I mean like a eight or 10-year bad flu, eight or, you know, once every eight or 10 years. I'm living in a world now uh, which is insane with panic, fear, selfishness, economic collapse, and um, consolidation of power by the ultra-rich and ultra-powerful who are taking advantage of this. And I don't even think it's like a giant conspiracy. I think it's just sort of more like a comedy of errors. Like we're not being our best, none of us. And unfortunately, now is the time when we have to be our best. And I had hoped at the beginning that this would be a, a golden opportunity for us to be our best, for us, for the public authorities and health authorities to tell the population what they can actually do to increase their health, their metabolic health, their immunological health, and their resistance to these kinds of diseases and others, that it would actually be a, a call for real progress in immunology, that it would actually be a call for an evaluation of what's important and an open exchange of ideas. Instead, it's an era of censorship and um, you know unconstitutional uh, restriction of authorities that keep getting extended and extended from two weeks to flatten the curve to it'll never be back to normal. And so, uh, differently, I am, and frankly, fairly disgusted with this problem. And by that, I do not mean, by the way, by that, I do not mean Trump and Atlas. I mean, across the board, practically every politician and practically every media and social media and big tech and big pharma person. Very few people are speaking sense because primarily of corruption and financial conflicts of interest, not because they're conspiring to hurt people. They're just being too selfish. You mentioned earlier, Creon, a very important topic that I'd like to segue into right now, and that is what can people listening do to make themselves stronger, to boost their immune system, what can they do? And I want to start out with a word that you used earlier. You used the word supplements. I would like to ask you both directly, what, if any, supplements do you two scientists personally use on a regular basis? Nicholas, I'll start with you. What do you take in addition to the food that you eat we will get to the food that you both eat, but first the supplements. What, if any, supplements do you, Dr. Nicholas Cozy, take? Well, uh, my wife has been putting out a little menu of pills for me every morning, uh, which are supplements. But I would say perhaps the most important might be vitamin D3. Uh, it seems that there is evidence that, uh, that vitamin uh, D can uh, boost the immune system. So I've been taking that. Um, maybe some zinc. Uh, I mean, nothing, I mean, kind of like run of the mill, you know, vitamin 
kind of things. Um, nothing that's really esoteric or, you know, people haven't been using for other, uh, for, you know, health for a while. So that's basically, I, I would say D3 is the one that sticks out in my mind as being. D3 and zinc. Yeah. It doesn't need to be esoteric, gentlemen. It just, it needs to be what you take. The public wants to know what you take. The public wants to know what Dr. Fauci takes, because that's part of where the rubber does meet the road. What do the scientists t- actually take? Nick, uh, Creon, what do you take? I haven't really changed very much uh, since COVID news came along. It turned out that what I was taking anyway seems to be the some of the most effective, if not all the most effective stuff. Uh, vitamin D3, zinc, vitamin K, uh, and um, melatonin at night. And uh, those are a few of the top ones that seem to have real uh, effectiveness uh, at least associational effectiveness with COVID. I think D3 was actually done with some interventional trials and showed substantial effectiveness. I mean, and this is an example, if I just rant for a second, of one of the problems. It's like, why have the health authorities been all about masks and vaccines, which, as we discussed previously, you know, there's ambiguity and and problems and and uncertainties, there's precious little uncertainty about vitamin D, zinc, melatonin, vitamin K, maybe N-acetylcysteine, which I don't take, but perhaps should, a few other things. Um, why aren't they saying to the public, these are inexpensive and harmless, and we're pretty sure, but not absolutely sure, that they can drastically improve your um, health, resistance to this disease, and your prognosis should you catch the virus. Why aren't they saying that? They're, I do not understand, well, I do understand, but I still ask that question and, um, you know, and speculate about the answer. Uh, so yeah, that's what, I, that's what I take. Thank you. One of the questions that I get on a regular basis that need not be the subject matter for today, but if it's not, it needs to be in the future. And the question I get is, to what extent is being overweight a health factor when it comes to the flu, COVID-19, and other transmittable diseases? To what extent? And is there, if, it, if, if being overweight is injurious, where does being overweight begin to be injurious. In other words, people want to know, can I be five pounds overweight for my weight size? 10, 20, 30? Is there a direct relationship? If the the heavier I get, does that mean the more danger I'm in? And it, yeah, I can answer that, Richard. I can, I'm well-versed in that particular thing. And let me just jump right in. Please. Okay? It's not so much overweight per se, although that's a good proxy. It's metabolic health, okay? And what you want to avoid is the thing called metabolic syndrome, which is rigorously defined as, I think, if you have two or more of the following five symptoms. Body mass index above, I don't know what it is, 25 or 30. 25. Overweight or obese. 
blood pressure above a certain level, so like prehypertensive or hypertensive blood pressure, blood sugar, fasting blood sugar above a certain level. Um, uh, I forget um, what the other ones are, but those are good enough. Blood pressure, blood sugar, and body mass index. As long as you keep them all reasonable, uh, you are much less likely to get sick and much less likely to get dead from COVID. Now, it's and it's dramatic. It's like for every point or two increase, percentage point increase in these numbers, your percentage likelihood of ending up on a ventilator or dead increases dramatically. Now, people will point to age and they will say age is the biggest comorbidity factor. But you don't forget that age is completely associated with these other things like higher blood pressure, higher blood sugar, and, and higher weight. So you're trying to keep inflammatory situation, chronic inflammation down. You keep chronic inflammation down by, well, chronic inflammation is one of the factors along with, with blood sugar, weight, and blood pressure. All these things are primarily driven by environmental factors and primarily they're driven by diet, okay? And it's not a matter of what you should eat, actually. It's simpler than that. It's a matter of what you should not eat. And what you should not eat is processed food. And what you should not eat is sugar. And what you should not eat is carbohydrates. And what you should not eat is industrial seed oils, which have been rebranded as vegetable oils, but they're really not vegetable oils. So... Uh, Give us that list again, Creon. Repeat it for our listeners, please. What you should not eat. Cut out all sugar. Cut out all carbohydrates. Cut out all seed oils or so-called vegetable oils, uh, uh, which does not include avocado oil and olive oil. They are not vegetable oils. They're from fruits, technically. Uh, So cut out all sugar. Cut out all carbs. Cut out all seed oils. And cut out all processed food. But as a matter of fact, since processed food is pretty much entirely made of sugar, carbs, and seed oils, if you cut out sugar, carbs, and seed oils, you'll cut out processed food. If you cut out that in most situations, unless you live in an extremely polluted area or are already extremely sick, you will reduce all of these indicators. You'll lose weight. You'll lower your blood pressure. You'll get your blood lipids back in line for most people, not all people. You will get your chronic inflammation down, and now your immune system will begin to able to be function effectively because it will not be turned on all the time fighting over-glycosylated errant molecules that are throughout your body, but instead will be selectively activated to uh, defeat pathogens as it was evolved to do. Um, so yeah, and, and, and ancestral diet is the key. The diet we evolved to eat. Nick, do you want to weigh in on this topic? Um, no, I, I guess, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't have any specific, uh, like, dietary things that I avoid. I mean, most of the things that Creon mentioned are, you know, I'd have to give up pizza, and I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so... Uh, I can, yeah, tell I, you how to give up, I can tell you how to give up pizza, Nick. Okay. Here's, how Here's how I gave up pizza. I got a continuous glucose monitor, which I'm not wearing right now, but they're not very expensive. The doctor can prescribe one for you. you. Wear a continuous glucose monitor for a month or two, and then have a big meal of pizza. 
and watch what happens to your blood sugar. No, I understand. I, I, I get all that. It'll go so catastrophically high, you may never eat pizza again. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> that that's just one example. But, um, uh, I, I mean, I think for the most part, what I, you know, I agree with, you know, Creon's uh, uh, suggestions. Uh, I mean, these are probably good things to avoid. I think that, you know, uh, type 2 diabetes tends to... Uh, uh, become more prominent as as we age, and I think it's because we're, you know, eating so many carbs. It's kind of like our our bodies are kind of in a constant state of you know releasing glucose, and then becomes insensitive to it. Uh, uh, and o- over decades, this probably does produce that. But Insulin. I don't know. I guess I try to be reasonably healthy and. Uh, you know, I don't eat that much meat, uh, although I do still eat meat from time to time. You know, I eat salads uh, a lot. Uh, uh, you know, I try to be healthy. I try to get exercise, fresh air, uh, stuff like that. Hey, uh, Richard, yes. I'm going to have to sign off in about five minutes. So let me just make a last statement about this, which kind of ties it together, if you don't mind. I'll be brief. The thing about diet and getting these metabolic markers under control, these simple ones like blood glucose, blood pressure, and body mass index. We know that 95 to 98% of the people who die of COVID have two or more um, comorbidities. Comorbidities. 90 plus percent, perhaps as much as 98, have two or more. So the number who have one or more is probably very close to 99%. And that is when the comorbidities are defined in a somewhat restrictive manner. Like they keep that they make BMI, it has to be above 30, and you have to have diabetes. They don't take pre-diabetes into account. So if you define comorbidities the way I would, which is anyone with metabolic syndrome, along with all the normal comorbidities, I bet you would find that nearly 100% of the people who die of COVID have the comorbidities. Why isn't Fauci up there saying that? Why isn't he up there saying 99% of the people who die have these comorbidities? You can get these comorbidities under control, most of you, in a week by giving up sugar and giving up carbs and giving up processed foods. And not only will it prevent, you know, not only will you lose the weight and look better and feel better and be less likely to get heart attacks and strokes in years down the line, you will be less likely to die alone on a ventilator next year when COVID comes around again. In fact, you'll be about 30 times less likely. The co- the, the take, I'll answer you. The takeaway I'm getting from both of you, and now you correct me in the few minutes we have left with Creon, correct me if I'm mistaken, but here's the takeaway I'm getting. This thing is serious, but nowhere near as serious as we're being told. This thing is killing people, but it's not killing all of us, and it's mostly killing people who have other problems. This thing is killing us, but if you look at the number of people, even though those who die is tragic, terrible for the family, the number of people statistically is very, very small. That's my takeaway here. And I'm I'm scratching my head, looking at a country that's living in terror, unnecessarily, according to two scientists that I trust. Neither of you wants to get this thing. 
both of you are being somewhat careful in your own way, but you're not living terrified, partly because of your socioeconomic status and the way you live, and I heard that very clearly uh, enunciated by Creon with his empathy for the tens of millions of people who are suffering, but because of their socioeconomic status, because of how they have to live. So we need to reduce the fear. That's my takeaway from this. We need to reduce the fear level so that we can live without fear, but rationally with regard to dealing with what's being called this pandemic. That's, that's my major takeaway. It doesn't mean that we should be cavalier, but it certainly means that we can be, if not fearless, in a, great, a much greater state of reduced fear. And so I thank you both. We, we're running out of time. Creon has to leave, and uh, we will now end the interview but I want you to both know that I want you to come back because there's more to talk about. I want to talk about the effects of alcohol on this uh, on, on the, immune, the immune system. I want to talk about that Lancet research that, that came up with a headline after with hundreds of thousands of subjects that alcohol is toxic to the human system. And of course, in, what, what, in, in terms of what Creon's saying, alcohol is full of sugar. And, and I want to talk about that both in terms of science and in terms of your own thoughts and feelings about it. We have a great deal more to talk about. But for today, thank you both very much for, for joining us and, and for sharing this information with the public. I really appreciate you being here, and I look forward to your, your coming back. And, and those of you who are listening and watching, thank you for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And my special thanks to my producer, Charlie Deist, who makes the whole thing possible. And he was the one who helped us when we had the technical problem today. The preceding program was brought to you by Wilbur Hot Springs Health Sanctuary and Thanksgiving Coffee. You know, the autumn season is magnificent at Wilbur Hot Springs. It's a wonderful place to get away and revitalize. I know you'll enjoy taking the waters and hiking in the 1,800-acre nature preserve. At Wilbur, you'll find Plenty of lodging options from camping platforms to cozy private cabins. Wilbur truly is a health sanctuary. Book a visit today at WilburHotSprings.com. That's WilburHotSprings.com. Here in Fort Bragg, where Jolie and I live on our little J&R farm, we're producing the world's best organic eggs. At least we think so. Our chickens give a lot of love to each other, and we give them a lot of love. They eat the finest free-range food and organic pellets. Our eggs are so excellent that we're able to trade them for the world's best gourmet coffee, Thanksgiving coffee. When I drink coffee, I only drink Thanksgiving coffee. And that's the truth, because it's the best. And because the founder of Thanksgiving coffee, Paul Katzif, is a social worker, a licensed social worker, and a political activist who has improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. He's made it possible for them to get financial benefit for the coffee that they grow. Paul and I have mutual admiration. He appreciates and supports this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics so much that he's created three special Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee blends. 
Then he doubles down and donates 20% of his internet sales of these three special mind, body, health, and politics blends to the COVID Response Network, a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. And I'll say the CRN COVID Response Network is doing a great job. A recent survey indicated that 98% of North Coasters are masking up and social distancing. And that's something we didn't talk about today, which is the effect of social distancing. We've got to get back to that. Go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website and buy Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee and support both truth-telling, the broadcast Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and the COVID Response Network. Go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company now. Well, please join me again next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 